Our scripture reading today will be found in the second book, second book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. This passage will also serve to give us context for the message to be preached by Paul in a moment here. 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, And in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. I don't expect you to remember, but I preached from these verses that Josh read back on August 13th. And this morning we'll pick up in verse 16 and go through all of chapter 9. Chapters 8 and 9 go together, and they probably really should be preached in one sermon. But I've developed them in two sermons, separated by five months, which is less than ideal in some sense. But it's what God has for us in his providence. So Paul's goal in these two chapters is to encourage the Corinthians to follow through in completing the gift. They agreed to give the poor Christians in the Jerusalem church. Verse 10 states that they had initially shown zeal for the project, but it had pretty much fizzled out for a variety of reasons. But as we saw in chapter 7, the painful letter that Paul wrote led to a godly repentance, a godly sorrow which led to a godly repentance, and the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians was restored. And Paul knew Paul knew that their response to his encouragement to complete their promised gift would be further confirmation that their repentance was indeed sincere and their faith was genuine. So as Paul calls the Corinthians to give here in these first 15 verses, 
we see that Christian generosity is marked by joyful sacrifice. In spite of persecution and poverty, the Macedonian Christians experienced an abundance of joy as they gave even beyond what they had because they gave themselves first to the Lord. Second, we see that Christian generosity is motivated by grace. Grace is all throughout these two chapters. Verse 1, he references the grace God poured out to the churches in Macedonia. Verse 9, the grace in Christ. And third, we see that Christian generosity is giving in proportion to what we have. Paul doesn't tell here the Corinthians how much they should give. Because the New Testament principle of giving of giving is in proportion to what you have, and that replaces the principle of the tithe that we see in the Old Testament. God's concern isn't that we dutifully give 10%, but that we are willingly giving to the extent that God has blessed us. Paul proceeds then in verse 16 through 9-5, and we know that chapter breaks are not inspired, and, and I would suggest that this one isn't probably in the best spot. Probably would better go after verse 5. But, but in this section, Paul discusses some details regarding how this gift is to be handled. And we see in this first section the administration of generosity. And then in 9-6 through the end of chapter 9, Paul tells them what will happen when they give. He describes for them blessings of generosity. Before we look at the text, please join me in prayer. Father, I need you in this moment. We all need you in this moment. And we ask now that you would open our eyes to see your word and that it would affect our hearts. Accomplish your purposes now in this time, we pray. Through Christ, amen. Picking up here in verse 16, please follow along. Paul writes, But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the church to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, and as I said, you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. 
So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So the Apostle Paul clearly wanted to make sure that the handling of this gift was done right. And I think we see here two things that we can draw from. First, financial administration is a spiritual task for spiritual people. Paul tells the Corinthians here he's sending a team of three. Three men are coming to collect the gift. The first in verse 16 is Titus, who was one of Paul's most trusted and beloved disciples. Titus, if you remember, was the one who took the severe letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7. He developed a love for them, and he really wanted to go and collect their gift. Verse 18 references the brother famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. We don't know specifically who this was, but the churches he was famous amongst probably were the churches of Macedonia, which was north of Corinth. Verse 19 states that he had been appointed by the churches. And that word, appointed, is a technical term for being elected, most likely by a raise of hands. So, if you wonder where we see voting in the Bible, this is one of the places, I think, and, and there are others as well. The third man, also unnamed, is described in verse 22 as one who's often tested and found earnest in many matters. So these three men are to go ahead of Paul, and then we presume at least Titus, perhaps the others, will go with Paul from Corinth back to Jerusalem to deliver the gift. Now we know from Romans 15 that their collection mission was a success. And in Acts 24, we see that the Corinthian gift did indeed make it to the Jewish Christians. Verse 23 here describes these messengers of the churches as the glory of Christ. Earlier in this letter, chapter 3, verse 18, chapter 4, we see that those who encounter the glory of God in the face of Christ are transformed into that very same glory. So since Christ is the one who creates in these men an eager desire to serve the Corinthians, they are visible manifestations of Christ's life-changing glory. As we seek to apply this to our lives, we're reminded, I think, in this section, which could be seen by some as sort of mundane details that really aren't that significant, but I think in them, we are reminded that our handling of money as a church must be taken very seriously because it's a spiritual task, not merely a routine transfer of dollars and cents. So, so in our handling of money, we're not just playing with numbers. We're stewards of the money that God has entrusted to our church, and how we use it reveals our philosophy, our priorities, and our goals. This is why the oversight of our finances must be in the hands of spiritual people. It is essential that the spiritually qualified overseers of the flock, our elders, set the financial priorities, goals, and ministry decisions. In the shepherding seminar that 
addresses finances of the church. Dan talks about how common it is for churches to regulate daily financial decisions to a treasurer or to place spending in the care of a board of trustees, which oftentimes are made up of people who are successful in business and money management, but that's about all. But as one preacher noted, churches get into all kinds of trouble when they put money people in charge of money rather than God people. So putting together a budget is a spiritual task. Every year in our church, budget decisions will be made that carry enormous spiritual consequences. And so even if you aren't a numbers person and budgets and reports don't even excite you in the least, if you're a member of this church, you ought to care about our finances. I don't expect you to necessarily understand everything in our budget or even agree with everything in it. But you should care about it. You should be familiar with it. Ask the elders any questions that you may have and, and then be here in two weeks to vote on it at our annual members meeting. So financial administration is a spiritual task for spiritual people. Second, we see here that financial administration should be above reproach. It should be above reproach. Paul states in verses 4 and 5 that one of the reasons he sends these three men to collect the money was because he knew that if he showed up at their door with some Macedonians and they didn't have the gift ready, it would cause the Corinthians great shame. They would be embarrassed. They'd feel at that time an unavoidable pressure to give, and Paul didn't want that. He desired it to be a willing gift, not an exaction. But Paul gives an additional, some additional reasoning, I think, for his plan in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 8, where he says, we're doing this so that no one would blame us about this generous gift. We aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. See, Paul is very sensitive to the charge of mishandling money and any suspicion or even the slightest perception of wrongdoing, he was sensitive to that. And so he took every precaution he could to be above reproach. Now, there are so many ways that money can be handled poorly by a church. Perhaps in your life you've seen some of them. There's lots of ways. And all of them, to one degree or another, can easily lead to suspicion, accusation, rivalry, or disappointment. We've all heard stories of scams, embezzlement, or excessive uses of church funds. One such example came a few years ago when televangelist Creflo Dollar said that if only 200,000 of his followers would give $300 each, they could buy a $65 million luxury jet that he said was essential to their ministry. His church announced, quote, we want to acquire a Gulfstream G650 because it's the best in a reflection of the level of excellence at which this organization chooses to operate. Now I know this is a bit of an extreme example, but too often Christians have brought discredit to themselves 
and to the Christian faith by mishandling donations through fraud or by receiving excessively high salaries for their service of the gospel. Paul doesn't want that. He's very sensitive to any charge that he might be guilty of corruption, therefore bends over backwards to keep everything open in public and to avoid the slightest impression of any self-seeking in all of his ministry, especially here regarding the collection of this money. So, we're reminded as a church of the importance of being above reproach in our finances. We certainly don't do everything perfectly. There's probably more we can do here or there or things we could adjust. But I hope you know that a lot of effort is put into seeking to be honorable, not only in the sight of God, but also in the sight of men. We begin an open conversation about our proposed budget, including all the salaries, at the men's leadership retreat in November. We invite questions, comments, feedback. There's nothing about our finances that we want to hide. We make available our proposed budget and notes that explain the budget several weeks before it's voted on. In fact, they're sitting on a stand by the mailboxes as I speak. We invite questions and feedback from you. And just to be sure that you have the opportunity to discuss something, we schedule an open-door elders meeting a week before the vote for any member to come and talk about what's on their mind. Our deacons and deacons in training are responsible for counting. There's always at least two people present when counting is done, and none of the elders ever know how much any of you give. Between our budget stewards who keep record of everything spent in their category, J.J. Meeling, who graciously records all of the credit card purchases, and Dana Hagen, our treasurer, who makes sure everything is recorded correctly and accounted for, multiple eyes are seeing where our money is going, and there's accountability built in for every dollar that is spent. Dan Nicewander, Leon Brink, Kevin Kuntz, Mike Meeling, Ron Hagen, Rocky Ranch, and Dana Hagen are all both God people and money people who graciously serve on our finance committee. I've sat in on most of their meetings. I've heard discussions about audits, tax rules and regulations, and other things that strike most of us as incredibly boring. But the work they do is so valuable, and it must happen if we're going to be above reproach in our finances. So thank you to our deacons, our budget stewards, our finance committee, our treasurer. Your work goes mostly unnoticed, but it is absolutely essential if we're going to be above reproach in a faithful witness of the gospel. Paul shifts here from discussing the administration of the Corinthians' generosity to the blessings that result from their generosity, starting in verse 6 of chapter 9. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I think the blessings of generosity are summed up in verse 11. We see there that the giver is enriched, and we see that God is glorified. But before we consider each of them, we must note that not all giving receives these blessings. There is a kind of giving that is blessed. We don't have to give a certain amount in order to receive these blessings. Thank God for that, right? But we must give in a certain way. Bad giving, which does not receive these blessings, is giving which is done as exaction in verse 5 sparingly, verse 6, or reluctantly or under compulsion, verse 7, with, with sorrow or grief, kind of like attacks. It's not voluntary. All three of these bad types of giving involve a desire to hold back. In each of them, we're not thinking about how much I can give. What are we thinking about? How much can I keep? On the other hand, good giving that does receive these blessings is that which is done willingly, verse 5. That which is given bountifully, verse 6. And that which is given cheerfully, verse 7. Do you find it hard to be a cheerful and willing spender? There's probably certain things that is very easy and natural You natural for you to cheerfully spend. And we can happily dish out lots of money for shoes or clothes. Perhaps a really good meal at a nice restaurant or a good cup of coffee. It can be easy to spend cheerfully on a vehicle or a vacation, some form of recreation or entertainment. And I don't think there's going to be any shortage of people in Minnesota ready and willing to cheerfully pay an exceedingly bountiful price for a ticket to the Super Bowl if, if the Vikings make it. We spend cheerfully because whatever we are buying provides us a certain level of joy. And as Christians... We should always give cheerfully 
because there's no greater joy than God himself. And when we give with a glad and eager heart, God rejoices because he himself is a cheerful giver. The first blessing that we see here of cheerful giving is that we're enriched. That we're enriched. We see this in verses 8 through 11, which we'll just walk through here in a moment. It's important, I think, as we approach these verses, to just consider that there are those out there all around the world teaching and preaching, guys like Creflo Dollar, who I mentioned earlier. Lots of prosperity teachers who say that these verses, 8 through 11, are a promise of prosperity. Here, they say, is proof that God wants you to be rich. Give me your seed money, they say. If you heard of seed money? Okay, they say, give me your seed money. You sow $5, you're going to reap $100. And as we consider these verses, I think it'll be evident, I hope it'll be evident, that this is not what these verses are teaching. Verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Having all sufficiency, all sufficiency here carries the idea of contentment. Why? So that you may abound in every good work, not so that you can get rich. Verse 9. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Paul quotes here from Psalm 112 to make the point that the righteousness or the giving of the Corinthians is God's righteousness. And as one commentator said, since the Lord is gracious and merciful to provide all that we need and show his righteousness in providing abundantly for his people, since God's doing that, our giving as Christians is all part of that larger righteousness of God by which we ourselves live and in which we will remain forever. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He who supplies seed to the sower is an allusion to Isaiah 55.10. And harvest of your righteousness is an allusion to Hosea 10.12. And both of these Old Testament texts indicate that the seed and the harvest that God supplies and promises to multiply can't simply be equated with material possessions. Because the context of both those Old Testament books is the provision of God's word which brings about the final redemption of his people. God's promise here then is not to make his people rich, but to use them as instruments of his presence in the salvation of others. So this harvest of righteousness isn't wealth and prosperity, but it's the fruit that comes about from our generosity. Good works more ministry opportunities, more conversions and baptisms, new members, more missionaries in hard and unreached places, more people hearing the gospel, more pastors trained in God's word, 
in some, the harvest of righteousness is more and more people, including the giver, being transformed into the image of Christ. Verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So as we sow seeds, as we give, we'll be enriched in every way. We'll be enriched in every way, which means there are other ways besides wealth through which God blesses us. Now, this certainly includes the increase of money, but why does God give that blessing to us? It says here he gives us more than we need so we can be generous in every way and give more to others. So receiving more from God is the means that allows us to give more, not the means to become rich as promoted by the prosperity gospel. I've seen this written in multiple places here. It's a helpful image. God enriches our lives so we'll be conduits, not cul-de-sacs. Some examples of that I think we see earlier in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 4, we receive God's comfort. Why? So we can comfort others. Chapter 5, We see that God has given us the gift of reconciliation. Why? So we can be ministers of reconciliation. And here, God enriches cheerful givers in every way so they can be more generous. What is so damning about the prosperity gospel is that it's good news is money and riches. And for Paul, the good news is Jesus Christ and his purposes being worked out in our lives. You couldn't be any more different. In thinking of all this, I was really challenged to consider that so often we hold back in our giving because we worry that we will not have enough for ourselves. Even within the last couple months, That was going on in my heart. There was a temptation to hold back because of the fear that I wouldn't have enough for myself. It is certainly true that greed is a big reason for our lack of cheerful giving. But perhaps a more subtle and even more common reason we fail to give as we should is fear. If I give this away... What's going to be left for me? Thinking a little bit on the image here in the text. Do farmers who plant their seeds think this way? No. Farmers don't consider sowing as a loss of seed because the harvest will provide the seed for the next season. And if the farmer for some reason is skimpy on his sowing, he will cheat himself on the harvest and he's going to end up at the end of the day with even less seed. Seed is something that you get rid of. And the more we give away, the more we receive from God. So so I think these promises here ought to help us overcome fear when it comes to our giving. Fear makes us tight-fisted with our money. And the problem with being tight-fisted is that the closed fist presents us from receiving anything from God. 
But when we're open-handed with others, our hands are also open to receive more from God. So when we talk about money, we're really talking about God and his sufficiency. So with this in view, we see that the difference between bad giving and good giving is really seeing God rightly. See, if we see God more as a taker than as a giver, we're going to give reluctantly. But when we see the gracious and abundant generosity of God, our hands are opened up. Martin Luther said, I've had many things in my hands that I lost. But the things that I placed in the hands of God, I still possess. So the first blessing of generosity is that we're enriched with everything we need and more. The second and even more significant blessing of generosity is that God is glorified. God is glorified. Multiple references of that in these verses. So before we consider three ways, I think, directly from the text, we see in which our gen- ways in which our generosity glorifies God, we should think about how God is glorified when we live as if we really do believe what we've just considered in verses 8 through 11. See, if we trust money, we'll think that the more I give, the less I have. God gets more, I have less. And we'll think that I can only give when I'm prospering and have something extra that I don't need for myself. Is God glorified in that? He's not. He's not. But but if we trust God, if we believe that the more we give away, the more we're going to get, and because God provides me with even more than I need, there's never a time when I can't be generous. Cheerful giving is an expression of our trust in a God who gives. And that brings him glory. Three specific ways here in our text in which we see how God is glorified in our generosity. First, God's glorified in our generosity through thanksgiving. Through thanksgiving. Verse 11, the generosity of the Corinthians will produce thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, the generosity is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So as we give to the cause of Christ, God's people will be, they're going to be thankful for us. But far more significantly, they will recognize that we are merely the means that God is using to provide for them. And their hearts will explode with thanksgiving to God who's meeting their needs through us. Have you ever heard of the butterfly effect? It's the concept that states that small causes have large effects. I read, quote, that this effect, the butterfly effect, grants the power to cause a hurricane in China, so the cause of the hurricane in China, is a butterfly flapping its wings in New Mexico. It may take a very long time, but the connection is real. If the butterfly had not flapped its wings at just the right point in space or time, the hurricane would not have happened. Make sense? Do you got that? Okay. No, you can figure that out, talk about that over lunch or something, (laughs) all right? There's way more to the butterfly effect than I can even begin to understand. But let's just take it for, for what we have here. 
Let's take it as an illustration. I think it's a good one. I think it illustrates how our small steps of obedience in giving can have large effects. So for example, you give with a cheerful heart. It's a relatively small gift, but Richfield Bible Church receives it, and it helps them to be able to pay Brian's salary so he can obey his call to give himself to the word and prayer. And then he preaches with boldness and power, and God uses his word to cause members to take small steps of obedience as they're equipped to do the work of the ministry. And their obedience continues to multiply in the lives of others to whom they evangelize and disciple. And through it all, and in ways we may never know and see in this life, there's an overflow of thanksgiving to God for what he's doing through your gift, and God is glorified. One small act of obedience leading to greater and greater effects that will continue to grow and multiply through all eternity. In study this past week, I was struck yet again by the fact that it is your cheerful giving that supports me and my family. And what you pay all of us as pastors is incredibly, incredibly generous. So thank you for responding in this way to God's grace at work in your life as you've done for so many years. And may your gracious giving always cause us to give thanksgiving to God so that he is glorified. God's glorified in our generosity through thanksgiving. Second, he's glorified in our generosity through his transforming power. Through his transforming power. Notice verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. The Corinthians were giving generously to the Jews in Macedonia because they'd been transformed by the gospel of Christ, the good news that they were submitting to. Do you think there were any other Jews being provided for by unknown Gentiles miles away? Gentiles anywhere for that matter. That was unheard of in that day. It was totally unnatural for a Gentile to cheerfully give to meet the needs of a Jew they didn't even know. And the only way it happened was only possible through God's heart-transforming power in the gospel. General Sam Houston, whose victory at the Battle of San Joaquinto secured independence of Texas from Mexico, he was led to a saving faith in Christ at age 65, and he was transformed. A biographer wrote, quote, The long quest for spiritual repose ended when Houston knelt before the altar and asked to be received into the church. And on the 19th of November, 1858, the convert waded into the chilly waters of Rocky Creek and was baptized. The church publication at the time said, quote, The announcement of General Houston's conversion has excited wonder and surprise of many who have supposed he was past praying for. On the day Sam Houston was baptized, he offered to pay half of the minister's salary. When someone asked him about it, he said, Well, my pocketbook was baptized too. 
You see, when we're united to Christ in saving faith, our entire heart becomes his. And if he has our heart, he's going to have our money. For Jesus said, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So if we've truly been converted by the gospel of Christ, we'll cheerfully give to his cause. And that glorifies God. That glorifies God because it's only possible through his supernatural power. Third, God is glorified in our generosity through his inexpressible gift. Through his inexpressible gift. Paul ends this section in verse 15 the same way he started it, by giving thanks to God. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. God is glorified in the Corinthians' generosity because the example and motivation for their giving is God's inexpressible gift to them. What gift is he talking about? It's the gift of God himself. In the person of Jesus Christ, which Paul referred to back in chapter 8, verse 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the first time the Greek word translated inexpressible appears anywhere in the Greek language, causing one commentator to conclude that Paul could find no word to describe God's gift, so he made one up. A word that says, in effect, that the gift can't be described. Jesus was unspeakably rich, yet he became poor. He was rich in sinless perfection and became poor on the cross because our sins bankrupted him. In all of his riches, Jesus became poor during his time on earth so that we, in our spiritual poverty, might become rich for all eternity. The wonder of this gift is that all that Christ was and all that Christ is can be ours. Because of what Christ has done, we're offered forgiveness of our sins in every spiritual blessing in Christ. Not because we deserve it. We don't deserve it. And there's nothing we can do to earn it. It is offered to us freely by grace. All we must do is receive it. I wonder this morning, have you received God's inexpressible gift? If not, I call you to turn from your sin in repentance and trust Christ by faith. And if you have questions about that or if you want to talk to somebody more, please let us know. We'd be happy to do so. And as Christians, we should note here how easy it can be to grow familiar with this gift. Take it for granted, not really think about it, and not let it regularly affect our lives. As Rich challenged us last week from Colossians 1, the good news of this inexpressible gift must be something we continue to grow in, continue to love, and continue to apply to every aspect of our lives. I saw a few different articles in recent weeks speculating how the new tax legislation would impact nonprofit organizations. And the consensus seemed to be that since some would not receive as high of a deduction for charitable giving, people would give less 
in organizations that depend on their gifts would suffer. I couldn't help but wonder as I was thinking through this, would my giving to the cause of Christ be less if it didn't provide a tax benefit? What we get from Uncle Sam is really nice, right? I mean, who here is not thankful for tax benefits? But they don't even compare to these blessings. God is able to make all grace abound to us, giving us all sufficiency in all things at all times so we can abound in every good work. He provides us with money as we give it away. He multiplies it and increases the harvest of our righteousness beyond what we can even know in this life. God enriches us in every way so we can be generous in every way. And in all of this, the giver of grace gets the glory. God is glorified in our generosity as others thank him as they see his heart-transforming power at work in our hearts, and as our gift reflects to them his inexpressible gift to us in Christ. The God of the universe has spoken to us through his word this morning regarding the administration of generosity. It's a spiritual task for spiritual people, and in every way, it must be above reproach. And God has graciously let us know here in his word the blessings that come from our generosity. We're enriched in every way that really matters, infinitely more than we deserve, and God himself receives the glory. I didn't choose to preach on this today because in any way, shape, or form, I perceive that our church is struggling in this area of giving. Not at all. It was the next text as I'm preaching through 2 Corinthians, and here we are. I thank God that in all my 17 years here in this church, a cheerful generosity in so many ways from so many of you has been very evident. And I know that spirit was here long before I showed up. So many of you have lived a life of generosity well beyond me. And so many of you have experienced these blessings we've considered in ways that I'm yet to know. As we are preparing the giving report, as we've been preparing the giving report that we'll share in two weeks at our members meeting, I've been absolutely blown away to see the amount of money we as a church have given in 2017 to the cause of Christ. I don't share these figures here to brag or somehow try to promote us as anything good, but I share them to encourage you, to encourage you that as a church, it is clear that we are indeed experiencing the blessings of God. So, 2017 general fund giving, $89,000 over what was budgeted, covers the ministry needs of this church and supports our missionaries. 
our three non-compensated elders received $2,385 each. $17,801 was given to the deacons fund to support members who are in need. $20,082 designated for our pavilion or the building fund. Richfield Bible Church, our brand new church plant, $55,000, $55,436. Our missionaries, so these are gifts designated above and beyond what they get from our budgeted money. Our missionaries, $18,205. Money through the teen auctions to help our teens go on the ministry trips, $4,328. Guest speakers, so these are people who've come throughout the year to speak perhaps Bible conference multiple times or even just once, $13,147. A relatively small assembly of butterflies in Burnsville, Minnesota, faithfully flapping our wings, which by God's grace is causing gospel hurricanes all over the world. May we continue to be individuals, families, and a church that is marked by cheerful generosity. And may we continue to know more and more of the riches that God generously pours out as we give, all for our good and all for his glory.